All right, Paradise Lost, Book 3. Uh, we begin with Milton's Invocation of the Muse, another one. He has several of these in Paradise Lost. And he begins, Hail, holy light, offspring of heaven's firstborn, of, or of the eternal, co-eternal beam. May I express thee unblamed? So he's talking about since you know since God is light, he's asking for divine inspiration, and is expressing his anxiety here. Can I express the unblamed? Uh, he has the, the the task now of talking about heaven, uh, and he, you know he praises God before the sun, before the heavens thou wert, and at the voice of God as with a mantle didst invest the rising world of waters dark and deep, one from the void of formless infinite. So he's alluding to the creation of the world, and I think uh, suggesting a, a parallel between the poetic creation he's making and the divine creation of the world. Uh, it says, Thee I revisit now with bolder wing, escaped the Stygian pool. So on the wings of poetry, he is revisiting heaven, and he recounts, I've been, I've been to the, the, the depths uh, in chaos and in night and through utter and through middle darkness, uh, taught by the heavenly muse, line 20, to venture down the dark descent and up to reascend, though hard and rare. Now, that's interestingly parallel with what Satan said, long is the way and hard that out of hell leads up to light. Milton is doing the same thing with his poetic uh, quest, Thee I revisit safe, and feel thy sovereign vital lamp. But thou revisits not these eyes that roll in vain to find thy piercing ray and find no dawn. So Milton is alluding here to his blindness. Milton uh, was completely blind at this point in his life. He had glaucoma, uh, or we believe that, the historians believe that, uh, based on his symptoms. Uh, and so he wrote Paradise Lost not himself he had to dictate it uh, his daughters actually did most of the took most of the dictation for him uh, and he's saying here I, I I want to have this this vision this poetic vision but I don't have any of the physical vision I'm I'm, I'm blind but he still has a poetic inspiration and uh, on Zion the Mount of poetic inspiration of the Bible, and the flowery brooks beneath that wash thy hollowed feet and warble, warbling flow, nightly I visit. So why does he visit them at night? Well, that's when he dreams. He has these visions he can still see in his dreams. That was the only time he had visual stimulus. Um, and then he compares himself to other great blind prophets. That's the tradition in literature, both in biblical and classical literature. Of course, as usual, Milton alludes to both, uh, of the, the irony of the blind man who had prophetic visions. Um, and picks up on line 40. Thus, with the year, seasons return, but not to me returns day, or the sweet approach of even or morn, or sight of vernal bloom, or summer's rose, or flocks or herds or human face divine but cloud instead and ever during dark surrounds me from the cheerful ways of men cut off and for the book of knowledge fair presented with a universal blank of nature's works to me expunged and raised and wisdom at one entrance quite shut out 
So he's talking about his his disability, his blindness, that uh, he's dark, cut off from people, and there's a really poignant and very personal note here about the, the isolation of his blindness. And But then he goes on, so much the rather thou celestial light shine inward, and the mind through all her powers irradiate. There plant eyes, all mist from thence purge and disperse, that I may see and tell of things invisible to mortal sight. So he says, though I lack that physical sight, grant me even more so the inward light, the uh, spiritual sight, so that I can see heaven and uh, present it poetically. Uh, so this is a, a much more personal uh, invocation to the muse than we got at the beginning of book one. That was much more formal. Here he's really talking about his own uh, his own blindness and his how it's brought him closer to God, how it gives him the inner spiritual sight. And then he continues with the story. Now had the Almighty Father from above, from the pure Empyrean where he sits, high-throned above all height, bent down his eye, his own works and their works at once, to view. So immediately we go from Milton's blindness and perhaps his inner spiritual sight to God's all-seeing eye. He looks down and sees this, and he, he looks at everything. He sees the world that's been created, and he sees Satan on his way to the, the earth. And God addresses the Son. Only begotten Son, this is line 80, seest thou what rage transports our adversary? Uh, that's a, the nice pun on transports. Uh, carried away both physically and emotionally. Rage is transporting our adversary, whom no bounds prescribe, no bars of hell, nor all the chains heaped on him there, nor yet the main abyss wide interrupt can hold. So bent he seems on desperate revenge. And again, bent is, a, is also a kind of a pun. Uh, bent, twisted, perverted, uh, but also just uh, as we would use it, you know, saying you're, somebody's hell-bent, they're determined. Uh, and desperate revenge that shall redound upon his own rebellious head. So God sees this, this uh, rebellion is only going to hurt him more. And now... Through all restraint broke loose, he wings his way not far off heaven in the precincts of light, directly towards the new created world, and man their place with purpose to assay, if him by force he can destroy, or worse, by some false guile pervert, and shall pervert. For man will hearken to his glozing lies, and easily transgress the sole command, sole pledge of his obedience. So will fall he and his faithless progeny." Whose fault? Whose but his own? Ingrate? He had of me all he could have. I made him just and right, sufficient to have stood, though free to fall. So here we get God sees not only what's happening now, but of course God sees the future as well. So he knows what Satan is going to do, and he knows he's going to succeed. Uh, but look at the tone that the... That God has here. Um, he's, he talks about man's faithless progeny. 
and that that next line, whose fault, whose but his own, ingrate. says, I did all I could. He was sufficient to have stood, though free to fall. I created him to do that. And there's, there's almost a kind of a, an annoyance here. And, you know, calling him an ingrate and all that. And he goes on around line 111. They therefore, as to right, belonged, so were created, nor can justly accuse their maker, or their making, or their fate, as if predestination overruled their will, disposed by absolute decree of or high foreknowledge, they themselves decreed their own revolt, not I. If I foreknew, foreknowledge had no influence on their fault, which had no less proved certain unforeknown. So, without least impulse or shadow of fate, or aught by men by me immutably foreseen, they trespass, authors to themselves, in all both what they judge and what they choose. Now this is a very accusatory tone. I mean he sounds like a lawyer making a case against this really this is not my and it's also very defensive. This is not my fault, it's all man's fault. And look at the, just the phrasing if I foreknew, really, if, he's just told us that he foreknew it. But again, it sounds like a lawyer. Well, you know, if my client was there, he didn't do it. And if he did do it, he had a good reason. You know, uh, it, it's um, a very legalistic and um, uh, tone that he takes up here and very defensive. Um, but he makes a distinction between the fallen angels and man. He says around line 130, the first sort, the fallen angels, Satan and the others, by their own suggestion fell, self-tempted, self-depraved. Man falls deceived by the other first. Man, therefore, shall find grace, the other none. In mercy and justice both, through heaven and earth, so shall my glory excel, but mercy, first and last, shall brightest shine. And the Son replies to the Father, and notice that he ignores all of the, the kind of ingrate language and the defensiveness and the legalistic language, and he picks up and says, O Father, gracious was that word which closed thy sovereign sentence, that man should find grace. Notice he doesn't say that the whole thing was gracious. He just says, oh, that last part about mercy, uh, I like that. Say more about that. And so from the very beginning, we have a, a, a distinction drawn between the God and the Son. Uh, God is very much an Old Testament God. He's legalistic. He's vengeful. Uh, he's pursuing justice. And the Son is very much a New Testament God. He is about mercy and forgiveness and grace. Uh, now, that's not absolutely true, but in general, their tones are very much like that. Now, you might be wondering, if you, you, know, if you went to Sunday school, uh, where is the Holy Spirit here? Well, Milton did not believe in the Holy Spirit. He rejected the notion of the Trinity. Uh, he believed that that was irrational, that you couldn't have three beings that were one being, and he didn't think that there was a, a biblical uh, basis for the Trinity. It was a later doctrine that had been created by the church. Uh, now, he, pub he wrote down a, a long explication of his 
religious beliefs in a book called On Christian Doctrine that was not published until long after his death. But he uh, outlines these ideas there, and Paradise Lost follows very clearly his own theology. Uh, This was what was called the Arian heresy, because Arius had uh, rejected the, the doctrine of the Trinity. So he also believed that God and the Son were co-equally God. They were they were omnipotent, uh, they were omniscient, they had all the power of God, but that the Father, God the Father, was eternal, that is, he had no beginning, whereas the Son had a beginning. He was begotten. There was a point before he existed, and then there was a point when he existed. God brought him into existence. Um, and that's a distinction. That's the distinction between them. And that will be important later on and when we get to later part of the the, uh, the book. But the Son is, again, a very kind of New Testament God. He likes that idea of finding grace. And notice the, the argument that the Son makes to God around line uh, uh, 156. Shall the adversary thus obtain his end and frustrate thine? Shall he fulfill his malice and thy goodness bring to naught? Uh, he puts it in it like to to God that you, well are you going to let Satan win? It says or wilt thou thyself abolish thy creation and make for him what thou for uh, what for thy glory thou hast made? This is something that they said in in the council in hell. Uh, We can get God so upset with his creation that he would destroy it, and that would surpass common revenge. Um, And the father replies to him, line 171, All hast hast thou spoken as my thoughts are, all as my eternal purpose has decreed. Man shall not quite be lost, but saved who will, yet not of his will in him, but grace in me, freely vouchsafed. Once more I will renew his lapsed powers through forfeit and in, though forfeit and enthralled by sin, foul exorbitant desires, upheld by me. Yet once more he shall stand on even ground against his mortal foe, by me upheld, that he may know how frail his fallen condition is, and to me owe all his de- deliverance and to none but me. Do you hear the word me in there a lot? Uh, me, 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 me. Um, again, the I find the, the tone of God in Paradise Lost consistently grating. Um, and I think that's a mirror image of what Milton has done with Satan. He presents Satan whom we know and who we see acting evilly in a heroic, attractive way. And he creates a God whom we know and see acting good as a annoying, overbearing, uh, unpleasant presence. Um, Milton is, I think it's a very deliberate strategy that Milton has that our reactions to these characters are not the comfortable kind of Sunday school reactions we might want them to be. And look how uh, God always kind of turns things around to a vengeful nature. Uh, he starts out around line 195, he's talking about how the, the, the elect will be saved. 
I will place within them as a guide my umpire, conscience, whom, if they will hear, light after light well used they shall attain, and to the end persisting safe arrive. This my long sufferance and my day of grace, they who neglect and scorn shall never taste, but hard be hardened, blind be blinded more, that they may stumble on and deeper fall, and none but such from mercy I exclude. Uh, notice he, God gets really carried away when he talks about, oh, but the other ones, I'll, they'll be even worse, and they'll, you know, blind be blinded more. Um, but he also, and he also brings out the scales of justice here, is on line 210. He, with his whole posterity, must die. Die he, or justice must, unless for him some other, able, and as willing, pay the rigid satisfaction, death for death. So here's the sacrifice has to be made. The wages of sin is death. Uh, so man and all his posterity must die unless there's a substitute for them. He says, Say, heavenly powers, where shall we find such love? Which of ye will be mortal to redeem man's mortal crime? And just the unjust to save dwells in all heaven charity so dear? He asked, but all the heavenly choir stood mute, and silence was in heaven. Now, this should remind you of that moment in Book 2 when Beelzebub asked, well, who is going to be our, our, our scout to go out and find this new world? And everyone in hell got really quiet. Same thing here. Here's the hard task. Is somebody willing to literally die to save man? And when he's asked that, all the angels in heaven are mute. But, of course, the Son speaks up. Father, thy word is past. Man shall find grace, and shall grace not find means that finds her way, the speediest of thy winged messengers, to visit all thy creatures. This is line 236. Behold me then, me for him, life for life I offer. On me let thine anger fall. Account me, man. I, for his sake, will leave thy bosom and this glory next to thee freely put off, and for him, lastly, die well pleased, and on me let death wreck all his rage. So here, notice that the son has all these repetitions of me, but they're all about his own sacrifice. Put all the punishment on me. Let me suffer for him. Um, he says, but I shall... Rise victorious, line 250, and subdue my vanquisher. So he is foreseeing his, his death and resurrection to save mankind. Now, of course, the, uh, th there's a mission that is accepted in both heaven and hell, though the mission in hell was one based on revenge and based on personal aggrandizement. It was to make Satan look better. And the one except that the Son accepts in heaven is one of mercy and grace, and it's one of sacrifice and humbling himself to help somebody else. So it's a very clear difference. Um, and again, I think God the Son is a lot more pleasant character than God the Father. And God the Father goes on and amplifies what the Son has said um, around, line, around line 300. So heavenly love shall outdo hellish hate, giving to death and dying to redeem, so dearly to redeem what hellish hate so easily destroyed, 
and still destroys and those who, when they may, accept not grace. Again, God always gets in the, the, the punishment and the, the guys who aren't doing right. Uh, nor shalt thou by descending to assume man's nature lessen or degrade thine own, uh, because thou hast, th- uh, though throned in highest bliss, equal to God, and equally enjoying godlike fruition, quitted all to save a world from utter loss, and hast been found by merit more than birthright, son of God. And this, you know, humbling yourself and incarnating yourself as a man and dying will not lessen you. It will show that you are, as he says, by merit more than birthright, rightfully my son. And that when you reascend, you will be incarnated still and sit as ruler of heaven. Uh, But again, all of this talk of mercy, eventually God gets back to the idea of judgment. Line 330. Thou shalt judge bad men and angels. They, arraign shall sink beneath thy sentence. Hell, her numbers full, thenceforth shall be forever shut. Meanwhile, the world shall burn, and from her ashes spring new heaven and earth. Um, and when, this is about the end of the world, you know, the final judgment. Um, then... Thou thy regal scepter shall lay by, for regal scepter then no more shall need. God shall be all in all. But all ye gods adore him, who to, compo- com- who to compass all this dies. Adore the Son, and honor him as me. So he calls on the, the angels to sing his praises, and they do. There's this uh, talk of this beautiful song that they have. Uh, their golden harps, their sacred song, um, their um, around line uh, 375. Thee, Father, first they sung, omnipotent, immutable, immortal, infinite, eternal King. Thee, author of all being, fountain of light, thyself invisible amidst the glorious brightness where thou stir- sittest, throned inaccessible. But when thou shadest the full blaze of thy beam and through a cloud drawn round about thee like a radiant shrine, dark with excessive bright. Thy skirts appear, yet dazzle heaven. The brightest seraphim approach not, but with both wings veil their eyes. Thee next they sang of all creation first, begotten son. Now notice there it's talking about God's brightness is so great, and that phrase, with dark with excessive bright. It's so bright that it's blinding. And, of course, that fits in with what Milton was talking about at the beginning of the of book three, about his own blindness and yet inner sight. Uh, God is so bright that even the angels can't bear to look at him. Um, so here's the, they finish the song, and then we get back to Satan around line 417. Meanwhile, upon the firm, opacious globe of this round world, whose first convex devised the luminous inferior orbs, Enclosed from chaos and the inroads of darkness old, Satan alighted walks. Now remember, I, I gave you that uh, those pictures of the map of Milton's cosmos, the the world, and by that he means the what we would call the universe, all of the stars and planets that we can see, is a great globe, and inside that globe are the 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 planets and the sun and the earth, um, and Satan lands on the outside of it. Uh, but he can't. Uh, he's looking for the the entrance, and we get another epic simile here around line four thirty one. 
as when a vulture on a mouse bred whose snowy ridge the roving tartar bounds, dislodging from a region scarce of prey to gorge the flesh of lambs or, or yeaning kids on hills where flocks are fed, flies toward the springs of Ganges or Hydespes, Indian streams, but in his way lights on the barren plains in Sarasan, where Chinese, Chineses drive with sails and wind their canny wagons light. So, on this windy sea of land, the fiend walked up and down alone, bent on his prey. Uh, so we get Satan is like a vulture. Now, why like a vulture? Uh, vultures prey on things that are already dead. Uh, there, this is not a noble, you know, this is not a bird of prey. This is a, a scavenger uh, who's going and, and, and picking up the, uh, the, the innocent and the weak. Um, and there's a section here, I'm not going to go into this too much, but the, it's called the, the Paradise of Fools. And the idea is that this is this area outside of the world, but not in heaven, is a kind of a limbo place where all of these uh, people who proclaim to be religious but weren't truly believers, uh, their their spirits are they're not there because they haven't been born yet. But when they are, uh, that this is where their spirits will go. And we find that Satan is looking for the the stairway to get in down to Earth. And another epic simile here, line five ten. The stairs were such as whereon Jacob saw angels ascending and descending, bands of guardian sprite, when he from Esau fled to Paddan Aram in the field of loves, dreaming by night under the open sky, and waking cried, This is the gate of heaven. So he's giving a biblical allusion here, the story of, of Jacob's vision, the uh, the stairway to heaven with the angels going up and down it. Uh, each stair mysteriously was meant, nor stood there always, but drawn up to heaven sometimes, viewless. And underneath, a bright sea flowed of jasper or of liquid pearl, whereon who after came from earth, sailing arrived, wafted by angels, or flew o'er the lake, wrapped in a chariot drawn by fiery steeds, so he's talking about this is a, a way to get out of the world to heaven, and some would like uh, you know he gives the illusion here as your footnote will tell you Elijah came to heaven in a chariot, uh, and so this is a, a pathway between the world and heaven. It says the stairs were then let down, whether to dare the fiend by easy ascent or aggravate his sad exclusion from the doors of bliss, direct against which opened from beneath, just o'er the blissful seat of paradise, a passage down to earth, a passage wide, wider by far than that of aftertimes over Mount Zion, and though uh, that were large, over the promised land to God so dear. So here we have this, the the way to the stairs that kind of give the access uh, are not always there. Sometimes they are, as he says, viewless, invisible. Um, but now they're let down. And uh, was it just to taunt Satan with the fact that he couldn't ascend them up to heaven? 
aggravate his sad exclusion. Well, okay, maybe it was all that, but it was also very convenient to have the stairs there so he could get down to earth very easily. Uh, so Satan does that, and he looks in at the top of this globe uh, and sees the whole world, uh, line, our whole universe, line four, 543. He looks down with wonder, at the sudden view of all this world at once, and another epic simile, as when a scout, through dark and desert ways, with peril gone all night, at last by break of cheerful dawn, obtains the brow of some high-climbing hill, which to his eye discovers unaware the goodly prospect of some foreign land first seen, or some renowned metropolis, with glistering spires and pinnacles adorned, which now the rising sun gilds with his beams, such wonder seized, though after heaven seen, the spirit malign, but much more envy seized at sight of all this world beheld so fair. So this image, it's like, uh, uh, this is an image of discovery, uh, you know, seeing a, a new land for the first time, a new city that has never been seen by you know, before. Um, and he sees with wonder, but more with envy. And we'll see this repeatedly with Satan, that the things that he sees that should, you know, fill him, f- should and do fill him with wonder also fill him with envy and resentment. He can't just see that this is beautiful. He sees it's beautiful, and he's envious that he's it's not for him. Uh, so you get this kind of, oh, it's almost kind of science fictional uh, uh, image. The he's at Remember, he's at the outermost edge of the, the universe as it's conceived in the Renaissance of this great sphere, and that's where all the stars are put. Um, and it says, line uh, 563, down right into the world's first region throws his flight precipitant and winds with ease through the pure marble his air his oblique way amongst innumerable stars that shone that shone stars distant but nigh hand seemed other worlds or other worlds they seemed or happy isles like those hesperian gardens famed of old so it's like each of those stars could be a world in itself, and you get the sense of the the vastness of the universe, and he just passes by that because he's only intent on finding the the earth, and he sees the brightest thing in this in this world is the sun, and now Milton is very cagey about uh, the cosmology here. He never says definitively whether it's the earth or the sun that is at the center of this universe. And that's because uh, that was a scientific controversy at the time. Uh, it had long been believed that, of course, the Earth was the... That we had a geocentric universe. Uh, but it had very recently, uh, the scientists and astronomers and Galileo... And uh, Milton actually uh, seems to have met Galileo when he was in Italy... Uh, had begun to see that, no, it's the sun that's the center and the earth goes around it. Uh, So since that scientific controversy hadn't been uh, settled, Milton wanted his, you know, his great epic to be accurate. 
So he never says one way or the other. You can always, if you look at it carefully, he never says exactly what's at the center. But he goes to the sun because that's the bright spot. Um, And says around line uh, 588, There lands the fiend, a spot like which perhaps astronomer in the sun's lucent orb through his glazed optic tube yet never saw. So it's like the, the Satan falls on the sun and makes a sunspot, uh, and it's a, a, a spot worse than any that had been would be seen later by the uh, astronomers. This was a big problem actually for the theology of the time because when they they had telescopes that could see sunspots uh, that upset them. The sun should be perfect; there shouldn't be blemishes on it. And so, in a way, Milton is supplying the reason. Well, you know, that's where Satan landed. That's why there are sunspots. It says the place he found beyond expression, bright, not surprising. Now, his image of the sun. Again, this is not twenty twenty first century science. The sun is like a planet, but everything is shining like molten hot metal. Uh, there, there's uh, liquid and solid, but it's all shining brightly. Uh, and he calls it the archchemic sun. So all of these chemical and alchemical um, uh, processes take place, you know, turning lead into gold and all of that because of the, the brightness and the, the heat of the sun. Um, and uh, line 615, he said, For sight, no obstacle found here, nor shade, but all sunshine. And not surprisingly, I mean, there's so much light that there's no obstacle to sight. You can see farther than you can anywhere else. Um, Again, that image of of vision and blindness comes in throughout Book 3 of Paradise Lost. Uh, But he sees that there is a, as he says, a glorious angel standing there who is guarding the sun. And look what... uh, Satan does. He doesn't try to fight the angel. He doesn't try to uh, you know, attack him. Uh, he assumes a disguise. Look at line uh, 636. And now a stripling cherub he appears, not of the prime, yet such as in his face youth smiled celestial, and every limb suitable grace diffused. So well he feigned. Under a coronet, his flowing hair in curls on either cheek played. Wings he wore of many a colored plume, sprinkled with gold. His habit, fit for speed, succinct, and held before his decent shape a silver wand. So this is, he's assuming the form of of an unfallen angel and a little innocent baby cherub angel. Right, not uh, not anything fearsome or, or dangerous, and has beautiful golden multicolored wings and a little silver wand. It's kind of like a cupid figure that you get the idea here. And he sees as uh, he drew not nigh unheard, the angel bright ere he drew nigh, his radiant visage turned, as, uh, admonished by his ear, and straight was known, the archangel Uriel. So this is one of the seven archangels, the very top angels. And, of course, Satan was one of them before he fell. Uh, So this is one of the the top 
uh, uh, ranking angels who's guarding the sun. And so Satan, who is, again, in disguise as this innocent cherub, he acknowledges Uriel and says, you know, what a great uh, angel you are. And then says line uh, uh, 663, unspeakable desire to see and know all these, his wondrous works, but chiefly man, his chief delight and favor, him for whom all these works so wondrous he ordained hath brought me from the choirs of cherubim alone thus wandering brightest seraph tell in which of all these shining orbs hath man his fixed seat or fixed seat hath none but all these shining orbs his choice to dwell that i may find him and with secret gaze or open admiration him behold on whom the great creator hath bestowed worlds and on whom hath all these gracious graces poured that both in him and all things as is meet the universal maker we may praise who justly hath driven out his rebel foes to deepest hell and to repair that loss created this new happy race of men to serve him better wise are all his ways now satan is really laying it on thick here uh he says well i just i just had to know and see man because he's the most important and the best thing and uh, i that's why i've come alone you're the brightest of the seraphs and you can tell me where he is uh, because i just want to go and praise god for his wonderful work um now that's all very plausible i mean isn't that what a an angel would say um and so satan is very clever here we see him being deceitful uh, think about how this is different than his encounter with sin and death at the gates of hell in book two there he started out very macho he was going to have a big fight with death uh, but then he he you know learned what the family relations were and had the whole oh my dear daughter and uh, you know was able to sweet talk them into letting him out now he's starting with that we kind of see satan's uh becoming more subtle in his approaches here and the narrator uh, uh, milton tells us so spake the false dissembler unperceived for neither man nor angel can discern hypocrisy the only evil that walks invisible except to God alone. So he was able to deceive Uriel. Uh, he was, he, hypocrisy, his deceit, uh, can work even on an angel. And this idea of things that are visible and invisible uh, run throughout book three, from the beginning invocation where Milton's talking about his blindness. Here is Uriel, who is the sharpest-sighted angel and is on the sun where the light allows him to see everything, but he can't see through this. He is, he's blind in this important way. Uh, in fact, it calls him the sharpest-sighted spirit of, of all in heaven. Um, and he likes what the little angel has said fair angel thy desire which tends to know the works of god thereby to glorify the great work maker master leads to no excess that reaches blame but rather merits praise the more it seems excess 
He said, you, you know, you can't be you can't be too excessive in praising God. I, I like your I like the cut of your jib there. You know, you're you're doing right. You're probably up for a promotion. Um, he says, you know, to witness with thine eyes what some perhaps contended with report here only in heaven. Again, this idea of seeing things, you know, you're, you're, that's good. You want to actually see it. Uh, so he tells him, and he points out exactly where it is uh, in line uh, 730. Um, it says, uh, hence fills and empties, uh, the moon is there, fills and empties to enlighten the earth, and in her pale dominion checks the night. That spot to which I point is paradise, Adam's abode. These lofty shades his bower, thy way thou canst not miss, me mine requires. So Uriel just points him out exactly where to go. See, he says, oh, see there, there's the planet Earth and there's the moon around it. Okay, and there on the Earth, that exact spot is where paradise is, where Adam is living. Um, so again, Satan's got an awfully easy time of this great epic quest to find man. Uh, he had, when the gates of hell were guarded by his daughter, uh, when he went into chaos, it looked like he might be blown off course, but then as luck would have it, he was blown right in. Uh, it, when he got to the, the outside of the, the world, he was looking for an entrance, and lo and behold, the stairs were let down for him. And here he easily deceives Uriel and is able to f- get him to trick him into telling him where man is. So again and again, Satan has had a smooth way uh, to his purposes here. Uh, fate seems to be on his side, which is kind of disturbing. Uh, all right, well, that's the uh, end of book three. Now, in book four, we are going to reach uh, uh, the world. We're going to actually see human beings instead of angels and gods. Uh, but book four starts out with Satan's arrival on Earth, and he has a long soliloquy. And I want you to think about that soliloquy. What is Satan telling us about himself. It's very much in the model of Shakespeare's soliloquies. We get to hear the inner workings of his mind. And think about how the things he says in this soliloquy may contradict things that we've heard him say before, and what this new insight gives us into his character and his motivations. Uh, Then you'll see a description of paradise and Eden. And look at that, that geographical description, because it's important to get a, a just a visual understanding of what how the geography of all this works. We'll kind of go through that because it's important here and later in the story. And then he finds Adam and Eve, and notice how they're described. What is the, uh, what's the first impression we get of Adam and Eve, and what's the contrast between Adam and Eve? How are they similar and how are they alike? And Eve is going to tell the story of her creation. And so that's very important. Later on, we're going to hear Adam tell the story of his creation, and we'll see the parallels there. But look at Eve's description here. And again, think about what insight it gives us into her character and into her relationship with Adam. So look at that. What, what kind of relationship do they have? How do they work together here? Um, 
Now, Satan is again in the garden, and the the angels are going to find out that he's come there and go looking for him. Uh, So we'll we'll see that. And there's a confrontation at the end of book four between the, the good angels and Satan. And see how that confrontation turns out. What happens as a result of this when they try to take Satan captive? And why does it end the way it does? Uh, how, do, how do things work out and why do they work out that way? Um, so we'll be talking about that and other nifty stuff in book four of Paradise Lost. Uh, again, you can address questions to drmarkwomack at gmail.com. Thanks for your attention. I'll talk to you next time.